So let me just start with um, Faulkner. This is a really interesting um, image of Faulkner in Japan. We know that Faulkner is so much associated with um, Oxford, Mississippi. Um, but he actually traveled quite a bit um, under the sponsorship uh, of the State Department. He was there uh, because he, the State Department asked him to uh, travel around and um, to give talks. Um, and what's interesting about Faulkner in Japan um, is that he, some of the most interesting things that he says about his own novels um, were actually said when he was in Japan um, in the course of the, the Nagona Seminar, 1955. Um, and this is really what he says about um, the sound of theory. This is how the book grew. That is, I wrote the same story four times. None of them were right. But I had anguish so much that I could not throw any of it away and start over. So I printed it in the four sections. I mean, this is obviously tongue-in-cheek. He's saying that, you know, he's written so much in four different ways um, that he can't bear to get rid of any of it. So, you know, he's keeping all four. And it's the same story told four times. Um, it's tongue-in-cheek. But there's an element of truth in it. Um, so uh, let's uh, try out, follow Faulkner um, in that thought. Um, and think of the sound of fury, the four sections of the sound of fury, as theme and variation, right? So you know it's a very interesting musical structure, theme and variation. Um, basically, is really the same story but told from four different points of view, using four different narrative <coughs> techniques, um, and so producing different effects. But really, they're all rooted in the same phenomenon, which makes sense. I mean, it's really the same story. Um, another way to think about this, um, and this is really kind of adding on to um, our sense that this is theme and variation, um, is the notion of kinship, and this is really closer to our thematic understanding of the novel, um, that um, the three brothers each uh, gets to tell uh, his story in one section, and then the fourth section is told by uh, just an omniscient uh, narrator. So, but the first three sections, are told by the three Compson brothers. So there is kinship uh, among them. Um, and we'll think about uh, the extent to which um, they are brothers. Um, they're kin in both a biological sense, uh, but perhaps also in something uh, in more than just a biological sense. So um, let me just lay out the three ways in which um, Benji and Quentin uh, might be seen as kin. Um, and this is very much using the three analytic uh, registers that we've been using all the way through um, the three analytic scales, the larger scale to share macro history. Uh, this is commonsensical. They live in the United States after the Civil War. So that is the common ground between them. Um, and in fact, it doesn't take brothers to have that common ground. Um, and um, especially thinking about race relations and the tomorrow of race, thinking back to that line from Macbeth, scene five, F five, scene five. Um, so that's the largest, um, you know, ground for kinship between them. 
Um, and then there's another ground for kinship, which has to do, obviously, with Faulkner's narrative experimentation um, and the traumatic loss of Caddy that we saw last time that's being repeated in the Quentin section. Uh, likewise, the incomplete syntax that is so striking in Benji will also be repeated in Quentin. Um, and finally, the importance of the sense of smell uh, that is in Benji uh, will also be repeated in Quentin. Uh, we'll look at the kinship first. And then uh, we'll look at um, uh, variation. You know, even though they're brothers, they're different as well. So basically, today's lecture is about kinship and variation. But let's start with the kinship. And I want to talk a little bit um, about race after the Civil War, especially Faulkner's understanding of that. So in his um, 1956 interview with the London Sunday Times, Faulkner has this very interesting thing to say. And the Negro won't come out on top because of anything to do with race, but because he has always gotten by without scope. When they're given scope, they use it fully. They are trained to do more than a white man can do with the same limitations. <coughs> I have a bit of a cold, so. Um, this will be fine. Um, so, um, oh, so um, this is um, the, um, the the way that I'll be uh, like to think about race is by going back to Macbeth, um, scene five, Act um, five, scene five, and um, the first line actually of Macbeth. Um, Act 5, scene 5, is tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. Um, and thinking that, mapping that uh, onto race relations, uh, we see that uh, Benji is 33 years old. Um, what kind of a future does he have? Um, and what kind of future um, do the other black characters have? Uh, so let's look at Benji first, and thinking about what future, what tomorrow holds for Benji. And um, this is very early on, the opening of the Benji section. Listen at you now, Luster said. Ain't you something? 33 years old, going on that way. After I done went all the way to town to buy you that cake, hush up that morning. Ain't you going to help me find that quarter so I can go to the show tonight? Um, Benji can talk, obviously. Um, so he, Luster is the one who is doing all the talking. Uh, but I think that Faulkner seems almost to be emphasizing that Luster is the player in the present, and he's going to be the player in the future. Um, and everything that is being done by Benji is being done by Luster and Dilsey to some extent, the two black characters. His mother isn't doing anything for him. Quentin is dead. Caddy is gone. Um, so um, Luster is Benji's only significant other at this point. Um, and if for no other reason, um, the future belongs Benji to the extent that Benji could have a future. That future can come only from Luster. So it's a really interesting way 
to think about the future as being race-mediated and race-dependent. Benji is completely helpless. Only Luster can give him a future. Um, and Luster is doing that. Um, all the things that Caddy used to do, Luster is doing. Um, he's telling Benji to hush. He's gone all the way to town to buy a birthday cake for Benji because Benji is 33 uh, that day. Um, and so in that sense, he's a very good, significant other to Benji. But more than that, we see that Luster actually has a life apart from Benji. The last sentence of that passage, ain't you going to help me find that quarter so I can go to the show tonight? Um, Luster wants to go to the show completely independent of Benji. Um, he has his own desires. He has a life um, apart from Benji. And Benji is really just an aside, an appendage, uh, and in this case, uh, someone who should help him to find that quarter so he can go to the show, pay for the show and go to the show. Um, so all of this is to suggest that the playing field has been reconfigurated um, and who is at the center, who is the main player, who is the protagonist uh, in this drama that is unfolding into the future. That really is an open question. And there's a strong suggestion that the playing field has been so reconstituted that black characters would be the protagonist. Um, so let's um, think more um, about the tomorrow of race, um, but in this, going off in a slightly different direction. And this is the very end, towards the very end of the Benji section. But, so basically, we're looking at the two moments that bracket the Benji section. Once again, Benji is with his significant other, Luster. He put my gown on, I hush. And then Luster stopped, his head toward the window. Then he went to the window and looked out. He came back and took my arm. Here she come, he said. Be quiet now. We went to the window and looked out. We came out of Quentin's window and cl climbed across into the tree. We watched the tree shaking. The shaking went down the tree, then it came out, and we watched it go across the grass. Then we couldn't see it. Come on, Lester said. There now, hear them horns. You get in that bed when my foot behaves. Okay, it's completely ungrammatical and that's just fine. Um, the future can belong to people who don't speak standard English. It's not a problem. Uh, but what is interesting here is that we're seeing something that only one person understands. We are actually in exactly the same position as Benji. We have no idea what's going on. Um, the meaning of what they're watching, whatever it is that's coming out of Quentin's window, and this is the female Quentin, the um, daughter of Caddy, um, whatever is happening, whatever is coming out of Quentin's window, um, what's going to come after that, what occasions that movement out of that window, all of this will not be disclosed to us until section three, when we get to the Jason section. Um, so there's a really interesting differential of knowledge in this moment. Um, Benji obviously doesn't know what's going on. We, the readers, also don't know what's going on. The only person who is fully in command of the requisite knowledge is Luster. Um, I think this is very deliberately set up uh, by 
Faulkner um, to highlight the extent to which black characters have knowledge and agency. Um, so, um, so much for Benji, and obviously Benji is a part, you know, of the black world. Um, I think that, you know, we maybe we should even suspend, you know, I mean, Benji looks white, he's pasty actually. Um, but we can think of him as really part and parcel of the black world, and his well-being is completely dependent uh, and off a piece with the well-being of the black world. Um, but that is not the case with Quentin, although Quentin also has um, very important uh, non-trivial relations to black characters, um, and one black character who's following him around is the deacon, right? So this is a black man um, in Massachusetts, um, and this is what the deacon says to Quentin. Yes, sir, right this way, young master. Here we is, taking your bags. From then on until he had you completely subjugated, he was always in and out of your room, ubiquitous and garrulous, though his manner gradually moved northward as his raiment improved, until at last, when he had bled you, until you began to learn better, he was calling you Quentin, whatever. Um, so this is a black man who's definitely not the same as the Lusters and the Dulces who stayed on in Mississippi. This is a black man who has moved north. And here it's important to um, have some um, sense of the historical background um, that Faulkner is alluding to a uh, black man going north. This turns out to be a, one of the key episodes in African-American history, which is the Great Migration. And in fact, it happens in several waves. What we're seeing here is the first wave of the Great Migration uh, from 19, around roughly from 1910 to 1930. Um, two million African-Americans uh, went out of the South and to the North, to the Midwest and the West. Um, and here's one image uh, of the Great Migration, the train station almost completely filled with uh, blacks. And um, here's a wonderful painting by the uh, painter Jacob Lawrence. Um, if you are in DC, make sure to go to the Phillips Collection. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting collection. It's just a private collection, but great paintings. Um, and they have the Jacob Lawrence, uh, the Great Migration series, is um, almost 50 or 40 or 50 drawings. So it's really uh, a wonderful um, thing that they have. Um, and so check this out when, when you're in Washington, DC. Um, so as you can see, um, the people are going to Chicago and New York and um, St. Louis, but some of them also end up in Boston, Massachusetts. And the deacon ended up in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and once again, you know, he starts out sounding uh, bl not only black, but um, southern black, um, calling Quentin Young Master. Uh, but then, you know, he actually, in the course of one conversation, he can actually metaphorically uh, move north uh, just in the space of that one conversation. So um, here is um, something else that happens between uh, Quentin and the Deacon. Um, and this is actually very obviously uh, a backward allusion to Macbeth at 5, scene 5, um, because the word tomorrow is just uh, repeated about 
eight times in, in this little passage. Um, this is something that happens um, that when Quentin is thinking about his future, and you sort of know that he has no future, right? Um, so this is someone with no future talking to someone with a future. Take this around to my room tomorrow and give it to Shreve, who has something for you. <coughs> but not till tomorrow, mine. He took the letter and examined it. It's sealed up. Yes, and it's written within. Not good until tomorrow, mine. He was looking at me now, the envelope white in his black hand in the sun. His eyes were soft and irisless and brown. And suddenly I saw Roscoe's watching me from behind all his white folks' claptrap of uniforms and politics and Harvard Manor, diffident, secret, inarticulate, and sad. We ain't playing a joke on the old nigger as you. You know I'm not. Did any southerner ever play a joke on you? You're right. They're fine folks, but you can't live with them. Did you ever try, I said. But Roscoe's was gone. Once more, he was that self he had long since taught himself to wear in the world's eye, pompous, spurious, and quite, not quite gross. I'll confer to your wishes, my boy. Not until tomorrow, remember. So the letter is not going to be delivered to Shreve until Quentin is no more. Um, and the deacon obviously will still be there and to reap the benefit of delivering that letter. What is interesting here is the very compressed time, um, time scale um, that is packed into this little exchange. In the course of one conversation, the deacon can slide back into someone just like Roscoe's um, still in Mississippi um, from some time back uh, with the manner and the diffidence and the fear really uh, and the lack of self-assurance um, from some time past. He can slip back into it, but he's secure enough in the present, in the presence in Boston, Massachusetts, that he can get out of it, just also in that space of one conversation. And it is not, so the great migration is not just geographical migration, but also psychological migration as well. Um, that in his own mind, the deacon can move very, very fast from the south to the north. Um, and that agility of movement is partly what gives him a future. And there's something else about the sort of slightly ungrammatical or not quite perfect command of English. Um, I'll confer to your wishes. He means to say, I'll defer to your wishes. Um, but actually, confer is the, most, is the more appropriate word, uh, because he's not actually deferring to Quentin anymore. Deference is a thing of the past, um, a thing of the geographical self. And because he's um, in Massachusetts, um, he's actually conferring something. Uh, it is up to him to be the Asian and to confer something on Quentin. So the recomposition of the playing field is dramatized in some sense through that imperfect command of the English language. Um, and so in this sense, this Faulkner is also uh, rewriting um, both the future of race, but also the future of the history of the United States. 
Um, so in, in both these ways, Benji and Quentin uh, are really kin. They have a lot in common um, in the very vexed uh, relations uh, to black characters. Um, and another very, um, just I think this is something that you already know, but I just want to uh, refresh your memory. Um, they also are kin um, in the very traumatic uh, reaction uh, to this loss of innocence on Caddy's part. So this is something that we uh, looked at last time, uh, Benji. Uh, the moment when Caddy uh, can no longer go to the bathroom and wash herself clean. We were in the hall. Caddy was still looking at me. Her hand was against her mouth, and I saw her eyes, and I cried. We went up the stairs. She stopped again against the wall, looking at me, and I cried. And she went on, and I came on crying. And she shrank against the wall, looking at me. She opened the door to her room, but I pulled at her dress, and we went to the bathroom, and she stood against the door, looking at me. Then she put her arm across her face, and I pushed at her, crying. So we remember this very well, um, the <coughs> moment when suddenly Caddy is not putting her arms around Benji, but across her own face. And it is um, telling that it is almost completely reproduced and repeated in Quentin's section. One minute she was standing in the door, the next minute she was, he was pulling at her dress and bellowing. His voice hammered back and forth between the walls and waist, and she shrinking against the wall, getting smaller and smaller with her white face, her eyes like thumbs stuck into it, until he pushed her out of the room, his voice hammering back and forth as though its own momentum would not let it stop, as though there were no place for it in silence, bellowing. Um, it's exactly the same episode, except that now, all of a sudden, we hear that sound, that bellowing, that Benji is making that, of course, is invisible and inaudible when Benji is telling the story. We know exactly what that sound is doing. Um, Kelly seems to be uh, shrunken, she's getting smaller and smaller, she's so pushed around by Benji um, that she's getting smaller and smaller until she has no place to go. Um, and we really haven't thought of Benji as being aggressive, but that's really what he is, you know. Innocence is aggressive and it's demand that the world should completely conform to his dictates. And Benji is relentless in demanding that Kelly should conform to his dictates. Um, and the bellowing is the weapon that he uses to make sure that she does that. And when she cannot, um, he just keeps on doing it. Um, so we, from Quentin, we have this added perspective uh, of what Benji is doing to Caddy. Um, but otherwise, it's exactly the same moment, the same Caddy occupying the emotional center um, and it's an unbearable place for her two brothers to be. Um, it's not surprising then that the consequence of that traumatic loss should be articulated in the same way. In Benji, it's articulated as incomplete syntax and the consequences of that incomplete syntax. I was trying to say, and I called her trying to say, and she screamed, and I was trying to say, and the frustration uh, would come after that. Um, here's Quentin 
um, exhibiting the same symptom, uh, the same reaction to the loss of of Caddy. And it is surprising because you know we can say that uh, Wenji has an incomplete syntax because he's an idiot. He's clinically uh, retarded. Quentin is not retarded, um, but he also doesn't speak in complete sentences when he's very agitated. Because women, so delicate, so mysterious, Father said, delicate equilibrium of periodic filth between two moons balance. Moons, he said, full and yellow, as harvest moons, the hips, thighs, outside, outside of them, always, but yellow, feet, soles with walking like. They know that some men, that all those mysterious and imperious concealed, with all that inside of them, shapes an outward suavity, waiting for a touch to liquid putrefaction, like drawn things, floating like pale rubber, flabbery filled, getting the odor of honeysuckle all mixed up. It really, this stream of consciousness um, is completely internal to Quentin, um, and the logic of association is also peculiar to Quentin, so that you know, we, it would be very hard for us to uh, understand completely. All we can say is that this is both a point of commonality between Quentin and Benji, and also the point of departure or deviation. Uh, from Benji, we never get the sense that women are filthy, um, that there's something really repulsive um, and abominable about women, um, that just um, having uh, the menstrual cycle, that in itself is kind of filthy. Um, and But this is really what Quentin is fixated on, um, is this um, kind of revulsion uh, by female sexuality in its most elemental form, um, in a sense that it doesn't really take any action, just in its state as femaleness, there's some, something repulsive about them. Um, so this is um, a way, um, this stream of consciousness um, is Faulkner's way of getting us um, to get into a mind that is very different in some sense, as different from us as Benji's mind is. Um, and so let's um, think about this um, also uh, by way of the one thread that Faulkner is giving us. Um, in the case of Benji, uh, we see that the guy um, that is taking us through the various uh, salient moments in, in Benji is the phrase, caddy, smelled like trees. And in the case of Quentin, the phrase that will perform a comparable function is getting the odor of honeysuckle all mixed up, right? We see that that's the last sentence in that um, very strange passage. Um, and that phrase would appear again and again in the same manner as caddy smelled like trees. Um, so let's use that as a way to try to understand Quentin, um, I don't think that we ever will completely. Um, and that probably is a good thing. That's really what Faulkner, that's the effect that Faulkner wants to cultivate. Um, and this is, so this is moving away from kinship to thinking about variation, the ways in which Quentin is different from Benji. And one way in which Quentin is different from Benji 
is that sister is basically very, very clear, very straightforward, univocal meaning for Benji. It only has one meaning. Caddy smelled like trees. Um, she's the source of everything that is wonderful and comforting and good for Benji. Um, sister, the word sister, has a much more complicated meaning for Quentin. So we can think of it instead of just as one word as a very complex semantic field. And uh, what I'd like to do today is to follow the trajectory of that word sister and the phrase honeysuckle all mixed up. Um, follow that um, to try to get us from the beginning of Quentin's chapter, uh, not quite as linear as, um, as I would like, but uh, trying to get us from the beginning uh, of Quentin's section to the end of Quentin's section, and I think that we all know that he kills himself, right? He kills himself by jumping into the Charles River in Cambridge. Um, and so how does he get from, and it's just one day, it's the space of that one day, how does he get from the beginning of that day, that morning, to the end of that day? And we'll begin at a point when Quentin is closest to Benji, um, and then the way, all the ways in which he gradually moves away from Benji. But this is a moment uh, when we sort of know why it is, uh, or we're learning more about why it is that uh, Kelly's loss of sexuality is so traumatic to Quentin. Kelly, you hate him, don't you? She moved my hand up against her throat. Her heart was hammering there. Poor Quentin. Her face looked at the sky. It was low, so low that all smells and sounds of night seemed to have been crowded down like under a slack tent, especially the honeysuckle. It had got into my breathing. It was on her face and throat like paint. I had to pan to get any air at all out of that thick gray honeysuckle. Yes, I hate him. I would die for him. I've already died for him. I die for him over and over again every time this goes. It's a weird moment. Caddy is the one who is going to be pregnant because of this out of wedlock affair um, with men um, and with someone actually. She doesn't know, even know who the father is. Um, so she's the last person to be in a position to say, poor Quentin, um, but Faulkner's understanding of the situation is that even though Caddy is in a sorry, is in a dire situation at this moment, and it's a much worse thing back in the 20s um, for a young lady to be pregnant of wedlock, um, but in spite of that dire situation, Caddy still has a better life than Quentin. Um, and it has to do with the complete incomprehension of Quentin for Caddy's life. So in that sense, too, we can say this is the common ground between Benji and Quentin. Benji doesn't understand Quentin, uh, sorry, Benji, between Benji and Quentin. Benji doesn't understand Caddy because he doesn't have the mental capacity for it. And 
Quentin doesn't understand Kelly because he's never had the experience, and we know by the end of session two that he never will have that experience. What, is it, what does it mean to have that particular sensation uh, and to have gone through that even though the, the consequences are terrible? So we can see another way in which uh, this is actually a point of intersection between uh, the sound of fury and the great Gatsby. And there's really uh, a lot in common between Quentin and Gatsby as well. The intense desire for the love object to deny that she has any relation to anyone other than yourself. Right? This is what unites Quentin and Gatsby. Gatsby can't stand thought that Dilsey might have been in love with Tom um, at one point. And um, Quentin can't stand the thought that Kelly might actually be in love just at that moment when she's having sex with this guy. He can't stand that thought. Um, and that inability to stand that thought says something about a lack in Quentin's life. Um, if he had had that experience, he wouldn't have hated it so much. He, it wouldn't have been so unbearable for him. So that, and Kelly completely understands that. So that's the background <coughs> for that repeated phrase, poor Quentin. Um, and so this is the point where, um, where Benji and Quentin are really as one. The two brothers are as one. And now we begin to move away from that point of unity between Benji and uh, Quentin, because we also know that, in fact, uh, Caddy is a very fleeting presence in the, ben in the Quentin section. Um, the person who was there a lot uh, is actually a little Italian girl. Um, so that's a very odd um, choice on Faulkner's part, that for a good part of the Quentin section, Quentin is actually walking around with a little Italian girl that he calls sister. So this is, we're starting to get the different permutations of the word sister in this very complex semantic field. Hello, sister. She extended her fist. It uncurled around a nickel, moist and dirty, moist dirt, rich into her flesh. I handed the buns to the little girl, her fingers closed about them damp and hot, like worms. I went on. Then I looked back. She was behind me, under my elbow, sort of eating. We went on. It was quiet, hardly anyone about. Getting the odor of honeysuckle all mixed. She would have told me not to let me sit there on the steps, hearing her door, twilight slamming, hearing Benji still crying, supper. She would have to come down and getting honeysuckle all mixed up in it. So here we started to get the conflation of the two sisters, right? So this, the, the, in the italics, it's going back to that dramatic moment still. Kelly not being able to wash herself clean, Benji bellowing, door slamming, um, Kelly still up in her room. So still that moment. Um, but that moment is bleeding into, that moment from the past, is bleeding into Quentin's current walk with the little Italian girl. And that accounts for the images of dirt and filth that are being projected 
onto the lower Italian girls. She's just a little girl, um, you know, eating buns. Um, but the images of her are actually of a much older woman, moisture and dirt, rich into her flesh. Um, so at the very least, we can say that Quentin's experience of the entire world is channeled through, mediated by, and contaminated by his sense of the loss of sexual innocence on the part of Caddy. So that every single woman that he's going to encounter is going to carry some attributes of the Caddy who's lost her sexual innocence. Um, and the worst sister also carries the weight of that contamination. Um, but there are other interesting permutations of the worst sister. Um, and I just want to go back, take us back now to the very opening of the Quentin section. Um, and this is um, something that is, once again, very uh, peculiar, um, a kind of logical association, not entirely clarified for us. Um, I don't suppose anybody ever deliberately listened to a watch or a clock. You don't have to. You can be oblivious to the sound for a long while. Then in a second of ticking, it can create in the mind unbroken, the long diminishing parade of time you didn't hear. Like Father said, down the long and lonely light rays, you might see Jesus walking like and the good St. Francis, they said, little sister, death. They never had a sister. Um, it's making no sense to us on page 76, and it's probably still not making a whole lot of sense to you right now. Um, we know, though, that uh, the watch is very important. He steps on the watch and breaks the face of the watch. So he seems to have some quarrel with that watch, and we'll come back to this important detail at the end of the Quentin section. Uh, what is it, why is it that he's so angry at the watch? But for now, let's think about that last line. And the good St. Francis that said, little sister death, that never had a sister. So we've just seen the mapping of the word sister onto little Italian girl. And now the word sister is mapped onto death, okay? So what is it that enables that mapping to take place? Um, and here I should say something about uh, the way of reading Falkland on the whole. I don't really think um, that we need to do a lot of research um, to understand Falkland. You know, he's hard to understand, but actually it takes more reading than, than doing a lot of um, outside research. But here is one moment when actually um, some outside research would cast light on this particular logic of association. So um, I just want to bring up this uh, very strange um, uh, possible uh, reference for Faulkner. Um, and that is, um, it has to do with St. Francis. And he's telling us that St. Francis is important to him for some reason. Um, this is St. Francis' canticle of the sun, which turns out to be pivoted on the word Sister, praise be my Lord for Sister Moon and for the stars. Praise be my Lord for Sister Water, who is very serviceable unto us and humble and precious and clean. Praise be my Lord 
for our sister, the death of the body, from whom no man living can escape. So at the very least, we can say that those different mappings that we're seeing in Clinton seem to bear a very close correspondence to this particular logic of association from, uh, that we see in St. Francis. Um, obviously, you know, even though the two logics are similar, it's for a different reason that Quentin would have that kind of clustering of terms. So let's move on now to see what sister water means for Quentin. Um, and this is once again going back to Caddy, but suddenly water is coming into play um, in his relation to Caddy. Got to marry somebody. Have there been very many, Caddy? I don't know. Too many. You look after Benji and father. You don't know who it is then. Does he know? Don't touch me. Will you look after Benji and father? I began to feel the water because I came before I came to the bridge. The bridge was of gray stone lichened, dappled with slow moisture with a fungus crab. Beneath it, the water was clear and still in the shadow, whispering and clucking about the stone in fading swirls of spinning sky. Kelly, that I've got to marry somebody. So the most obvious, clearest fact is that Kelly is pregnant and that she needs to marry somebody and she's about to marry somebody, right? So this is about the only thing we know. Um, but what is interesting here is that when she's about to get be married and leave the Compton house, what she says to Quentin is, will you look after Benji and father? It is something that someone who's about to leave will say. It, someone who's about to get married and leave will say. But it could also be said by someone who's about to kill herself, right? You know, I'm going to be gone. There are two possible meanings for look after father and Benji. Someone who's no longer going to be around anymore is by someone who's not going to be around. And there are two different ways in which Caddy could be not around anymore. Right now, she's going to, going to do the marriage option. Uh, that's the way in which she's not going to be around anymore. But in Quentin's mind, there's already that alternative route that he's toying with. It would be very nice if Caddy were to kill herself by drowning herself. It would be one way. It would be the water this time is not something in the bathroom. It would be this gigantic body of water but she would indeed wash herself clean in that body of water. So this is one way in which sister and water constitute a potential mapping in Quentin's mind. But Caddy is not going to do it. She's just going to get married. She's going to be alive. So this is the problem for Quentin, is that Caddy is not going to clean herself by killing herself and by jumping into the water. Um, and he's furious, and the world is not, nothing is right when she refuses to clean herself as he demands her to be clean. So this is his conversation with his father. And father said, 
It's because you are a virgin, don't you see? Women are never virgins. Purity is a negative state, and therefore contrary to nature. It's nature is hurting you, not Caddy. And I said, that's just worse. And he said, so is virginity. And I said, you don't know. You can't know. And he said, yes. On the instant when we came to realize the tragedy is second hand. So it would have been the right kind of tragedy if Caddy had just killed herself by jumping into the water. It would have been appropriate cleansing kind of tragedy. And instead, she's not killing herself. Somebody has to kill himself uh, in order to uh, perform that needed action. Um, and Quentin's father is completely um, um, disapproving and, in fact, uh, making fun of that whole operation. Um, that it's right that Kelly shouldn't be too upset about her pregnancy. Uh, women are never virgins to begin with, never. They're never virgins. Interesting interpretation of virginity. Um, but I think that it really is uh, an interesting um, observation um, that the person who is both on the part of Mr. Thompson but also on the part of Faulkner, um, that the person who ought to be most upset by all of this is actually not the most upset about it. Um, and what happens when tragedy becomes secondhand, becomes vicarious tragedy? Quentin is reacting to this tragedy on the part of his sister and making it his own tragedy because in some sense that's really the only thing that he can call his own. So the problem with secondhand tragedy is that it really is somebody else's tragedy. It is not Quentin's own tragedy. At the moment, he's being devastated by it, and he likes to be devastated. He likes to be heroic and devastated, and to be devastated on behalf of his sister, um, and to feel that, that he's the one who's going to make everything right. Um, but there's always the danger that a second-hand tragedy will very soon fade out and become a non-tragedy. And that's why the word temporary is such an unbearable word for Quentin to contemplate. And I, temporary, and he, Mr. Thompson, his father, and he, you cannot bear to think that someday it will no longer hurt you like this now. And I, temporary, and he, it is hard believing to think that a love or a sorrow is a bond purchase without design and which matures willy-nilly and is recalled without warning to be replaced by whatever issue the gods happen to be floating at the moment. And I, temporary, and he was the saddest word of all. There is nothing else in the world is not despair until time. It's not even time until it was. So the tragedy isn't even that Caddy is pregnant. That's really nothing. The tragedy is that the fact that Quentin is devastated now, that wouldn't keep forever. It's going to, he's going to lose. He won't be able to hold on forever to that sense of devastation. And that is the tragedy that he's going to fight to put an end to, claim once and for all by doing what he does at the end of the novel. And this is where he jumps off um, from that. This is the bridge that he jumps off from um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it just so happens 
um, that it seems that some British reader had gone there. You know, it's British because of the spelling of the word odor. Um, but at that bridge, there's actually a plaque saying, Quentin Thompson drowned in the odor of honeysuckle. 1891-1910. So this is a very, very good reader of Faulkner, knowing exactly what is central in Faulkner's mind.